The gospel comes from the gospel according to Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, and you can find it on page 1018 of the Pew Bible. And please stand as you are able for the gospel. From Luke 2, beginning at verse 1, we read in Jesus' name. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. Peace be with you. And God's peace is with you. Why? Because God took on human flesh in the form of an infant. He came in peace, and he came to make peace. The biblical concept of peace is bigger than we might sometimes think. We might think of peace as simply nonviolence or a lack of hostility. In my house, when I was growing up, peace meant that my brother, my sister, and I were not fighting means we looked at our Christmas presents and we refrained from comparing who got the better ones. It didn't mean we liked each other at the moment, and it didn't mean we were always kind to each other. It just meant that we weren't actively hostile to one another in that particular moment. Peace was merely a lack of hostility. We look at the world and we see wars and conflicts around the world and within our own society. And peace in those circumstances, if we 
could have such a thing would simply mean a, a lack of violence or non-hostility. But God's definition of peace is really much deeper. The Hebrew word for peace means wholeness. It means that our spirits and our bodies are whole and complete. It means that we are living in harmony with God and with one another. It means we are united in one mind with the will of God and with one another. It means that we are united with the order that God built into his creation, functioning the way that he plans. And so when we say to one another, peace be with you, it's not just a, a throwaway line, and it's not wishful thinking, and we're not just hoping that nothing bad happens to you. But we're praying that your body and spirit would be whole. We're praying that you would be in agreement with God and his will. We are praying that together we would be united in one heart and mind with God, receiving and rejoicing in his salvation. And this is not wishful thinking. The angels do not say, we hope you have peace. They proclaim peace. God's peace is with you. God took on human flesh in the form of an infant. He came in peace, and he came to make peace between God and man. Now, this is the miracle of Christmas. We call it the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And Incarnation, that's a, a fancy theological word, I know, but it's worth it for Christians to know and use this word. There are some concepts that are just big enough and special enough that they deserve to keep their own special word. And this is certainly one of those things. Incarnation. The middle part of that word is carne. That's a Latin word. It means flesh. You can hear it in the word incarnation. It's similar to the, to the Spanish word carne. Maybe you might be familiar with that. In the Spanish word carne, it means meat, especially beef, because that is the tastiest of meats. And so chili, con carne, that means chili with meat, especially beef. Or, or there, are, there are a few restaurants around town that serve carne asada. That's grilled steak. And if you ask me later, I might give you my reviews on the, the various dishes. So when we talk about the incarnation of Jesus, we mean his enfleshment, him taking on meat, human flesh. The eternal Son of God took on human flesh. Nobody else has an incarnation. You and I, we do not have an incarnation. That is because as long as we have existed, we have already had this flesh. We started out as flesh and with flesh. We did not exist before it was created, and so we never took on flesh like the Son of God did. The miracle is that he existed before he had human flesh, but now he does. Now, there are two sides of this miracle, the big side and the small side. And to fully appreciate it, we need to recognize both the bigness and the smallness of this person who is Jesus Christ. He is the eternal Son of God. He possesses all the same power and divinity as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And yet, for our sake, he became small, very, very small. 
And to fully appreciate this miracle, we need to recognize both the bigness and the smallness. Tomorrow morning, we will focus on Christ's divine nature. That's the bigness of the thing. Tonight, we will focus on his human nature. That's the smallness. And together, they make the miracle that is the incarnation. Now, the real miracle of the incarnation, if we want to be technical, and I think we do, occurred approximately nine months earlier when the angel Gabriel announced to Mary that she would conceive and bear a son. And this would occur not in the natural way, but supernaturally, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the Virgin Mary conceived a child in her womb. The birth of Jesus was not really miraculous at all. The birth occurred the same natural way that billions of other children have been born. Now, the the whole process by which a woman conceives a child and grows a child and gives birth to a child seems miraculous. It's really the greatest thing that a human being can do. And we often call it a miracle, even though it is the natural way that God designed for creatures in his world to procreate children. It's just so marvelous that it seems miraculous to us every time. And I think God designed it that way so that we would recognize that the creation of a new life is his work and not ours. And so even though it occurs the same natural way over and over again, it still seems so marvelous. It still seems like a miracle. But when we talk about the miracle of Jesus' incarnation, that is a miracle in the truest sense of the word. A true miracle is an event that transcends the natural laws of the universe. If someone can suspend the natural order of the world and do something in a different way without the mechanisms of of nature, that is a true miracle. It's when something happens that is truly and legitimately impossible. And so I think it's kind of funny when Christians are mocked for believing in miracles, as if we don't know that these things are impossible. Of course we know that. That's why we call them miracles. And we don't believe every supposed miracle. Some so-called miracles are simply hoaxes. We know that. But we believe the miracles recorded in Scripture because they are supported by historical evidence. Numerous eyewitnesses testified to them, and they were recorded just like any other historical event. Now, the virgin birth, or really we should say the virgin conception, did not have a lot of eyewitnesses because it's harder to have eyewitnesses for something not happening. But there were people with firsthand knowledge of it, and we know the specific identities of three of them. First, Mary, of course. She saw and heard the angel Gabriel, and she knew her own story. She knew what she had done, what she had not done. And second, Joseph, an angel of the Lord, also appeared to him to tell him what was going on and about this miracle. And also third, Mary's relative Elizabeth. Immediately after the virgin conception, Mary traveled to Judea to visit Elizabeth, who was six months pregnant at the time with John the Baptist. And when Mary greeted Elizabeth, and this is such a marvelous story, you can read about it in Luke 1, John leaped in her womb, and and, and Elizabeth knew, without Mary even telling her, that she was with child, and that this child is 
the Lord. And those are, as far as I could count, the three people we know by name with first-hand knowledge of this miracle. And for most things, three witnesses is sufficient. We can understand, though, for such an incredible miracle if someone wants more evidence. And there is. The shepherds in the field gained first-hand knowledge of it when an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the greatest evidence for the virgin conception is what this child grew up to be and to do. He grew up and performed public miracles, many of them. There were hundreds of eyewitnesses. And the most significant of these miracles was his resurrection from the dead, of which there were over 500 witnesses at one time. And when we see this, when we see that this child, what he grew up to be and to do, we look back at the report of the virgin conception and we say, yeah, that checks out. And so we're not talking about a fairy tale here. We're talking about a real, legitimate miracle. We're talking about the Holy Spirit transcending the ordinary laws of nature to conceive in the Virgin Mary, the Son of God. Now, that's part of the smallness of the miracle. It's not just that God took on human flesh, and it's not just that the Son of God was once a newborn baby, but the Son of God took on human flesh at the smallest point of human existence, even at conception. There was a time when the eternal, infinite, and all-powerful Son of God was so small that only a microscope would be able to detect him. And that single cell in that moment was God. But it's not just in the size of Jesus that we see the smallness of the miracle. We also see it in the circumstances of his birth. He ends up in Bethlehem because his adoptive father, Joseph, is under authority. He is not a king, even though his son is. But instead, Joseph has to pay taxes to a king. And so he had to travel to Bethlehem in order to be registered for the census. And Jesus has no bed, no crib, no bassinet. And so Mary wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no space for them in the inn. Now the word inn here is probably a little bit misleading. Bethlehem was a small town and probably not big enough to have a commercial inn, like a motel. More often, this word that gets translated as inn actually means a guest room. If someone back then had a multi-room house, it would have a bedroom, maybe a couple of bedrooms, and one large multi-purpose room. And that's the room that Luke is talking about here. It was probably your dining room, your living room, but also a guest room when your friends or relatives came to visit. It's the same word that Luke and also Mark use later for the guest room where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper with his disciples. But at his birth, there is no place in this guest room for Jesus or for his mother. And this would have been at one of Joseph's relatives' house. And Joseph's relatives either could not or would not give them a place in their guest room. And this is actually much worse than the other picture we get, where there's this nice innkeeper who would like to give them a place, but he's all booked up, and so they 
find some shelter in a stable. In that scenario, it's a stranger who wishes he could help but just couldn't. In the real scenario, it's one of Joseph's relatives who just doesn't give them space. We don't know anything about this guy. We don't know what his deal was. In my opinion, I'm pretty sure I'm right in this too. This guy should have done something to make space for the pregnant lady. That's what you do. But whatever the case, he didn't. And it wasn't really his call either. It was God who orchestrated it this way. It was the Father in heaven who arranged for his eternal son to be born outside and laid in a manger. And a manger, by the way, is a feeding trough for animals. It's like a big doggy dish, except for donkeys and goats. God the Father arranged it this way in order to teach us the smallness or the humility of his son. And this was a sign to the shepherds. I find this to be really marvelous. The angel said to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. That's the promise, and here's the sign. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, there's a promise there. We could say it's a proclamation of good news because it's not just a promise of something that will happen, but it's the promise of something that already has happened. The promise is that a Savior has been born. Last Sunday, we talked about what kind of Savior Jesus is. He is our Savior from our sins. And then the angel, as proof of this, offers a sign to these shepherds. And this is really interesting. A sign is the proof of a promise. Later in Jesus' life, people demanded signs from, his, from him as proof that he really is the Son of God. And by sign, they meant some kind of miracle to prove his wild claims. And Jesus did many signs. But signs are not just miracles. They're not just the forensic proof to validate what Jesus or the angels have to say about him. But the signs reveal the content about Jesus. They don't just prove that he is the Son of God, and they don't just prove that he is the Savior. Even more so, they demonstrate what kind of Savior he is. They reveal his personality. And the shepherds, they don't really need any more forensic proof that the Son of God had been born. There was an entire terrifying army of angels filling the sky that was proof to them. But they needed to learn what kind of Savior had been born for them. And the sign of the Savior is this, a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, what is so miraculous about that? Nothing. He was despised and rejected by his own. He was poor. The only thing marvelous about this sign is how extremely unmarvelous it is. It's something you don't see every day because it's something that should never happen to any human child. But that's the sign. 
That is God's sign to the shepherds of who his son is. It's a sign of who he will grow up to be and what he will grow up to do. And that's the real smallness of it. It's not just that he was small in size, but to the world, he was small in value and small in importance. And Jesus embraced this humility. From the foundation of the world, it was his plan and his father's plan. And so he grew up to be despised and rejected. He grew up to be crucified for the sins of the world. And this is how he is our savior. This is how he saved his people from their sins. And so he has made peace between man and God. And that peace is not just a lack of hostility. It's not just that God is no longer angry over our sin, but even more than that, he is pleased with man. He is pleased with those who trust his son because Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. And Jesus gives this righteousness to you. And so God is pleased with you, and God is pleased with this. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Amen. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.